Our readings this morning alert us to uh, a possibility that I think seems a bit counterintuitive in our hurried, harassed, and hassled world, and that is this notion of being still and knowing God. I saw this week in the, in the paper that uh, Forbes magazine had just done a study on the most stressful areas in the country to live, the most stressful areas in all the country to live. So we weren't number one, we were number two, I think. The, the second most stressful place to live in the United States is right here in good old Southern California. U.S. News and World Report, I, I saw an online uh, article that somebody had written, you know, talking about all the buzz, positive and negative, about Obama going on vacation. And the writer says, we're a work-identified nation. That's the badge we wear. Where we work, what we do. That's how we define ourselves. Thus, we have a really hard time giving ourselves permission to take vacation time, to turn off Blackberries, emails, phones, whatever. And I know what happens. I mean, it, it happens to me. I mean, I, I'm not immune from this kind of stuff. Is you start feeling like you don't have any other choice, right? Um, you just feel like it's, uh, this is just, I have to do this. I just feel compelled to do it. And so then a sense of you, you start just intuitively feeling like you must be right. I mean, you're aware of the pressures and all that, but you just can't think of any other way to deal with life. And so you get this sense of, well, I must be right. It reminds me uh, of this story. I, I just, I love and hate this story from all my years of flying. So I want you to picture with me a, kind of a standard, I mean, picture Chicago O'Hare or something, you know, just this standard big airport, you know, with those sort of vinyl plastic black seats. Can you picture those, you know? And there'll be like two or three seats and then a little table. You can picture that little black vinyl table and then a couple more chairs. And you know, I swear those chairs are made to make you slip out of them. Do you know what I mean? Are you with me? Okay, so this lady, she's this harried, you know, business executive, and she gets to the airport, notices her flight's going to be late, so she's bombed, goes into the little newsstand, you know, that's all throughout airports, and gets a magazine and something to drink, and one of those little packages of like six crackers, can you picture that, like cheese crackers or peanut butter crackers or something, right? So she sits down, she puts her stuff down, and and she opens her crackers, and she's reading her whatever magazine and eating a cracker, and she notices out of the corner of the eye, the out of the corner of her eye that the guy on the other side of the table is helping himself to one of her crackers. Well, she's already had a bad day and she's a little steamed, but you know, that's socially awkward. I mean, what do you do? So she decides to just let it go, you know. So then a couple of minutes later, she looks over and he's doing it again. Well, now she's just like fuming, you know, like this is just enough. I mean, I've already had a bad day. And then to just top it all off, a couple minutes later, the guy takes the last cracker, he breaks it in half, he eats one half, puts the other half in the cellophane, and slides it over to her side. Well, now she just is about to, her head's about to explode. Well, this guy must have had a sweet tooth, because he gets up, and he goes over to the Cinnabon store. You know those things you can smell from a half a mile away? He goes over to the Cinnabon store, he gets a cinnamon roll, and he turns around, and that lady's right in front of him. And she gets right in his face and takes a big bite out of his cinnamon roll and just stares at him, you know, with this righteous indignation and goes back and sits down feeling good about herself. Just then, her flight's called, and she gets up, and she starts walking over to the jetway, and she reaches into her pocketbook to get out her ticket, and she finds her unopened package of crackers. 
So I was telling that story once years ago. I think I was in San Francisco, and this young couple comes running up to me afterwards. Todd, Todd, that's a true story. I said, I know, I'm a preacher. I don't lie. She said, no, but... No, but I mean, it, but that really happened, but you got it wrong. The reason that story got out is that that was a friend of mine, and she was a, I don't know, inner varsity or campus crusade worker or something. And she said, but, but you got the details wrong. And I said, well, what? What do you mean? She said, well, it wasn't a package of crackers. It was a Kit Kat bar, you know, like break me a piece, you know. It was a Kit Kat bar. And, and so this guy was breaking off pieces of the Kit Kat bar. And what really happened is she got home. She got all the way home and put her pocketbook down on her, her nightstand or something and went to put her keys away and saw her unopened Kit Kat bar. So the point is here, you can just be going along absolutely convincing yourself that you're doing it right. That you don't have any other choices in this harried, hurried, harassed world. But our readings this morning invite us to a different reality. To be still and know. To be still and know that I am God. You may not know that Psalm 46 is actually a very famous song because it's the, the basis on which Martin Luther wrote a great hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that was a hymn that, you know, kind of fueled the whole mentality of the Reformation. The yes, there's all this craziness going around us socially. There's all this craziness going around us economically, and the peasants are revolting, and there's all this tension between us and the church. It's this very harassed, very hurried, very hassled world, and Luther takes this psalm and creates out of it this great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, meaning that, as our readings were telling us this morning, that no matter what's going on, it's okay. Now, you may not be really familiar with 16th century history, but maybe you know Ned Flanders and The Simpsons. This was his doorbell chime. Come on, all of you who watch The Simpsons, you can admit it here in church. A mighty fortress is our God was his doorbell chime. But it gets worse. On one episode of The Gilmore Girls, Zach, for all of you who watch Gilmore Girls, Zach and his band was having a difficult time with this song, and they were sort of arguing about, you know, God and is he a mighty fortress. And so, remember, Zach changes the words to the song because God can't actually be our present help in a time of trouble. So, this has been going on for a long time. Well, why? Why is this important? Why have human beings forever wondered about reality on one hand, this reality that seems like I can't change, therefore I have to kind of give myself to it, versus this what seems like a theological idea, a concept, uh, something that's abstract that we can be still and know that our God is a mighty fortress in times of hurried, harassed, hassled times. Why is this important? Because it's given to Christians, followers of Jesus, for 2,000 years of boldness in the face of the whole world is falling apart. When our text this morning talks about it, it feels like the foundations of the earth is shaking. What the writer there is trying to talk about, he's trying to give you a picture of uncreation. So like when we think of creation, you know, the earth was formless and void, and God spoke to it and breathed upon it, and things started creating, sky and earth and rivers and all that. Well, what the writer here is trying to, to give us a picture of is that now things are being uncreated, and the very foundations of everything are being shaken. We might say things like the global economy is shaking. Poverty is actually expanding. Less and less people have clean water to drink. Nutritious food to eat. Nukes are proliferating. 
I saw this after, or, uh, one afternoon this weekend. Uh, do you know that all of you are $44,000 in debt? The national debt now means that all of us are $44,000 in debt. California is issuing IOUs to vendors and furloughing workers. If you've had anything to do with the healthcare system, you know whether you think about Democratic fixes or Republican fixes, it's broke. And almost everybody who gets into it experiences it. The norms of human sexuality are shaking. We have no agreement anymore on what's decent. It is just increasingly hard to make sense of this hurried, harassed, hassled, confusing world. In the middle of that, the psalmist has the audacity to say that God is our refuge and strength. That he's an ever-present help in trouble. And therefore, we will not fear. And though the earth give way, though it seems that everything is actually becoming uncreated, and though the mountains fall into the sea, I will be still and I will know God. So let's talk about this for a minute. What is this business of stillness? Well, it means things like pause. The idea is kind of to step back, to let go of panic. We sometimes playfully say, breathe, you know, just breathe. And that's really what's at the heart of this thing of being still, just letting yourself go for a moment and take a deep breath. And then know, know here means to recognize God's presence and power, to be alert to what he's doing in the midst of everything else that's going on. I love the way Peterson gets it in the message. He says, God lives here, therefore the streets are safe. And that is just to say something like at the heart of the world, at the heart of everything that's going on is God's rule. It's just that it doesn't seem like it. So come on, let's just get real for a minute. It just, it does sometimes feel like everything around us that can be shaken is shaken. I mean, from family to the economy to human sexuality to global politics and the global economy, I mean, it just feels like increasingly in my lifetime, more things are shaking, not less things. And so we can either say that's the reality or we can say that somehow underneath that reality, the streets are safe. That somehow God can make it through this. The same God who made it through the Crusades, the same God who's made it through world wars, that he can somehow make it through this. And then you just have to ask yourself, are you kidding yourself? Because I think this is what this really boils down to for most people. I don't want to kid myself. I want to live in reality. And the reality is everything is shaken. And so then we always have to ask ourselves, am I merely being religious? Am I being sort of whimsically and naively spiritual to think that I can actually be still and know that God is God and that he lives here amongst our chaos, our harassed and hurried world, and that therefore the streets, as Peterson says, are safe? It's actually a very big question to answer. Because if you can answer it in the affirmative that God lives here on your streets, you know, the streets of the activities of your life, then you get a couple of really big things. A, you can surrender the desire to control outcomes. Now, I know at this point, everybody in business, everybody who has to deliver against any kind of metric is saying, you're nuts. 
I cannot give up the desire to control outcomes. It will not work. But the key in that sentence is control. That sentence doesn't mean you don't work hard. That sentence doesn't mean you don't try your best. That sentence doesn't mean that you don't honor the person paying you a paycheck by giving them your very best or whatever, or family issues, or social issues, or whatever. It just means that that panic that gets attached to having to control outcomes yourself goes away, and you get something better in replacement. You get this stillness and this knowledge. It really is knowledge. It's not naive, hyper-spirituality. It's a knowledge that there is a God who, though everything else be shaken, is in control. And what this gives us then is the ability, it doesn't mean we don't work hard, it doesn't mean we don't care, it just means that there's, we recognize that there's something more going on here than just us. And so we then entrust to God outcomes. But as I'm saying here, this is sometimes difficult, and this is what Isaiah is picking up on when Isaiah talks about scoffers. You know, scoffers are just those who don't want to hear what they're hearing. And in Isaiah's day, Uh, they were just simply saying, we don't like being talked to the way you're talking to us. Essentially, they were saying, we don't need to be taught. We'll make up our own minds. And Isaiah is basically saying back to them, look, you can either listen or you're going to end up learning this lesson in a way you like even less. You know, God has this habit of using Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians. And you can either listen to me and get this right, or you're going to learn it a different way. But Israel, being afraid of the Assyrians, was not willing to be still in God. They were trying to secure their existence through political and military alliances. Now, is this starting to come clear here? Israel, like that woman at the airport, sincerely believing that she's right, is saying what is basically a, 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 um, a sort of a fundamental, no, functional atheism. Here's one really good definition of atheism. Nothing good is going to happen here unless I make it happen. See, that's the reverse of being still and knowing God and being able to release outcomes because what the the people of Israel were doing is they were busying themselves making all these political and military alliances because they were afraid of the Assyrians. And Isaiah is saying, that's not how this stuff works. That's not going to work. At some point, you have to make a fundamental decision. But see, this is so normal to us. I mean, even if you just look at the newspaper or on your favorite online news sources today, you'll see that everywhere, people are securing themselves with alliances. I can guarantee you there's a, Ru- there's a reason Russians are allowing the Iranian nuke thing to go through. That's just not some accident of history. They've got their own reason for doing that. I can guarantee you they're trying to secure something. Iran's trying to secure something with nukes. It just goes on and on and on. We've seen it our whole lives with nations and peoples, families, neighborhoods. This explains gangs, by the way, trying to secure themselves. And so this is so natural to us. We're, We're so accustomed to this. It's so much a part of our political and social discourse that we've actually lost the prophetic tradition out of which Isaiah was speaking. The tradition from which Isaiah is speaking goes something like this. Choose. Whose are you? Are you yours and you're going to secure your life and you're going to control all outcomes? Are you an American? And our government is going to secure you and all your uh, outcomes? 
Are you a democratic capitalist? And that's going to secure you and you know, determine all the outcomes? Or are you going to be still? Like just step back, pause, take a breath. And place yourself in another reality in which you are still you. And you still work hard and you still try your best. And you, you still do everything that you've always done that is sort of that Protestant work ethic. That's all fine. You just do it under a different umbrella. You do it under an umbrella in which you are fundamentally safe. So instead of working for security, we are working from an a priori or a pre-existing security that we already have. And therefore, when we go out into the world, we don't just go out effective. We go out actually as a healing presence. When someone can see somebody doing what they do in peace and a pre-existing security, that person is not only typically in my long work experience more effective, but they do something beyond their actual effectiveness. So Isaiah is asking these people to choose. The nations or God. Decide and then submit. And the submitting is being still and knowing. Well, we see this in our gospel reading this morning as Jesus is going through the towns and villages teaching, which was his job. So now I just want, to, I want you to ask yourself, do you suppose Jesus taught for the greatest possible outcomes? Or do you think he was doing a, I can't say that in church, a half, uh, half a job? Yeah, do you, do you suppose he was actually teaching and doing his best and working for the best outcomes he could possibly have? Of course he was. And it says here, he's making his way, though, to Jerusalem. Well, do you know what that means? He was making his way to what he knew was his death. He was making his way to submitting himself, to being still and knowing in the ultimate way. This is why he said to Peter in the garden, put away your sword. Or to Judas, you can't betray me. I am safe. Even in death, I am perfectly 100% safe. And you just have to know that that trusting in the outcome of God, that even if you kill me, God will raise me to life, is the most powerful teaching in the history of humanity. Of course, he taught as humanly as he could. He was a rabbi in that sense. He organized things. He gave amazing parables. He taught human ethics in a way that no one has. He was an amazing, wise rabbi, the smartest human being to ever have lived. But what fundamentally taught and lives on in all of human imagination was his giving away his life to outcomes of which he was not in control. But he was able to somehow be still and know that God was in control. This is an amazingly powerful picture of doing life in something that for Jesus was essentially fundamentally unsafe. He knew that trial and danger and death was ahead of him. And so, and though, so though Jesus was on the move, and I really hope you'll get a mental picture here, though Jesus was on the move, he was still and knowing. Let me say that again. Jesus was never lazy. Jesus was always busy. Meaning he, there was action, activity associated to his life. Huge drama associated with Jesus' life. Constant tension with religious people. Tension within his own posse. You know, Andrew and James wanting to call down fire from heaven. Jesus just going, you guys don't get it, you know. Peter denying him. There was tension everywhere in Jesus' life. 
He didn't live some life that is unknown to you. He lived a very busy, meaning full of activity, pressurized kind of life. But though he was on the move, he was still. There was a, a, a more fundamental in, inner stillness and knowing. So his disciples see this, and they see how different it is. And so they say to him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Like, are only a few people really going to get this? And Jesus essentially says to them in the prophetic tradition of Isaiah, well, you have to decide and submit. This is where he says you have to make every effort to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I know what happens here. At some point, all of you who are already working as hard as you can work, and maybe you're going to school on the side, and maybe you're a single mother, or maybe you've got a parent in the hospital that you're taking care of, and you've got grandkids coming. And so your typical baby boomer may be burning the candle on both ends, and you just say, Jesus, I cannot put out any more effort. I cannot make every effort. I need your grace. Well, I think we just have to be honest here and say that obviously grace alone or the grace we got when we said the sinner's prayer is not completely transformative. Because lots of us, almost all of us, are still dealing with habitual sin. What most we say of grace then? Do we say that grace is somehow impotent? What does Jesus mean when he says make every effort? That sounds like it stands against grace because we all know that grace means doing nothing. Grace means that we don't have to do anything, that God does it all. And that's the fundamental misunderstanding that Jesus is getting at, that there are things to do to come into a place of stillness and come into a place of doing. The important thing here is that they're not against the doctrine of grace. They're facilitated by the doctrine of grace. So when Jesus says something like, make every effort to enter in, he means something like, you have to put your mind on your life with God. That the way to life, the way to God is vigorous. And that it requires total attention. Now again, you say, how can I do that? Well, you do it this way. You take your everyday ordinary life, your eating, sleeping, getting up, walking around, and going to work life, and you make it the soil of your discipleship. You don't get up at 4.30 in the morning instead of 5 so that you can do your quiet time. And I've known throughout my life, I've, some of the meanest people I've known got up at 4 in the morning to do... You know why they were mean? They were tired. I mean, honestly, they were just some of the meanest people I've ever known. And judgmental... Because what happens is, you, you, what, what we do is we assign our spirituality, we, we assign our discipleship to this little half hour from 4.30 to 5, and then we go on and live our life. Much better to take your actual life, your, the, the actual exchanges you have with vice presidents and principals or teachers or uh, the plumber who comes to your house. You take those everyday, ordinary things, and you make it the soil of your discipleship. It's there that you learn to be patient, not merely in, quote, quiet time. It's in your actual life that you learn to be generous by acting generous in the people and events of your life. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Isaiah, the psalmist, they're all saying the same thing. Just decide and submit yourself to this reality. Well, how? On what basis could we possibly do that? And the writer of Hebrews tells us it's because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Isaiah says we're, we're building this on this precious cornerstone, this sure foundation, and that if you place your life on it, it won't topple. 
Now, I've only got a couple of minutes left here, and so I want to say what I think are the two most important things I can possibly say if you're hearing me this morning and going, okay, Todd, I think I sort of get what you're saying, but what do I do about this? Here's the first thing, uh, and I've said this before. You cannot wait until some idealized life comes. You cannot wait until you retire. You can't wait until you know, uh, the kids are in school. You can't wait until mom and dad finally die and they're not in the nursing home or whatever. You have to actually take your everyday life as you know it today and place it before God as an offering. Because here's the deal. Life is not a series of ups and downs. That is not what life is like. Life is more like railroad tracks. And there is always something good going on, and there is always something wrong going on. Am I not right? I mean, I see this every time I walk into a, a, like a large hospital. Picture with me like a large hospital waiting room. And over here, a little group of people who've gathered around a doctor and the surgeon's saying, man, it went great. Your mom's going to be fine. It's all good. And over here is another little group of people sitting down, talking to a doctor, and the doctor saying, I'm sorry, we couldn't save him. He got here too late. Over here is a family that's rejoicing, and there's balloons, and this couple that had been infertile for 12 years finally had a baby, and everybody's rejoicing. And over here in another little corner is a little group of people who found out that their baby has cancer. I mean, this is the nature of life. It's not ups and downs. There's always good and bad going on simultaneously. So the scriptures this morning ask us, what do we do about this? And they give us a suggestion of be still and know. So two quick things. All I can say something here is very quick. The basic things that Christians have done for 2,000 years to place themselves into this still and knowing life is solitude and silence. Those are the basic Christian disciplines. And I I would want to go so far to say that you're probably never going to enjoy the kind of life in which you really can work your hardest and express all your gifts and bring your best temperament and personality to the table of your life and not be controlling outcomes. There's only one way to do that. You have to put yourself in places of solitude. Because where you are in solitude, trust me, I know, because I hate it. Where you are in solitude is completely out of control. When you're in solitude, who's making sure everything's okay? Who's watching the kids? Who's watching the business? Who's writing those emails you wanted, you've been wanting to get at? Now I'm meddling, huh? But isn't that the truth? That's the, that's the, but, but you just need to know that that tension in solitude is what makes it so absolutely good for us, is that it's what teaches us to be still and know. Solitude is simply making space and enjoying the grace of doing nothing, trusting that God is actually in control. It breaks the power of busyness and haste and isolation and loneliness and shows us that the world is not on our shoulders after all. And then the second and last thing is silence. And what silence does is it sort of completes solitude. Uh, because without silence, you really can't be alone. That makes sense, right? If there's anything else going on, you're really not alone. And as long as you're not alone, you remain subject to the pulls and pushes of a world that exhaust you and that keep you in bondage, distracting you from God and your own soul. So far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God in the midst of your life. Silence doesn't just mean Uh, nothingness and everything goes away, but what you'll happen, as soon as you get into silence and solitude, you'll notice two things. One, 
The only thing you will hear is your own inner voice and the voice of God. Everything else is gone. But silence isn't nothingness because what it actually does is create space for God to come in and speak. It allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your actual life. And this is why the psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. Here's one of the scariest kind of theological thoughts I've ever thought in my own mediocre head. God does not normally compete for your attention or my attention. It's actually a very scary thought. He normally will just allow you to have your life. In the same way, he just allowed the rich young ruler to make his decision to walk away. God is not going to nag you, probably, the way your mom did to make your bed. That's the picture here. I think God understands that nagging doesn't really work. And so he's not going to do that. He normally just doesn't compete for our attention. But in silence, we come to attend to him. And so we stop our shaping, we stop our negotiating, we stop our spinning. I mean, just picture a cocktail party picture, or any kind of social environment where people aren't completely at ease. And you walk into a room like that. Now just picture all the conversations. Picture the little groups of two or three people standing around in a big living room or a, or a ballroom or something. And just picture all the conversations going on. Now picture this. Picture everybody who's talking stops defending, posturing, spinning. How much talking do you think in that room would just stop? And that's what silence and solitude does. It allows us to stop shaping, stop negotiating, stop spinning, stop spending so much energy on that kind of stuff and just let things stand. The readings asked us this morning to be still and in that stillness to come to a different kind of knowledge. They tell us that that knowledge shapes a life that we saw in Jesus, the ultimate Work hard, do the best you can, leave the outcomes to God. And then that kind of life is experienced by others as for their good. That we then become a person of peace, and that peace makes a difference in marriages, and child rearing, and offices, and classrooms all over the world. Be still and know. Let that knowledge shape a life and let that life overflow for the sake of others. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.